from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to the U.S. Farm Report Beck's College Roadshow this weekend. This week's stop, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, also known as the birthplace of the McRib sandwich. And we have a lot to cover over the next 60 minutes. Harvest in the Cornhusker State is now underway. Variable, just like it usually is in the state of Nebraska. So just how variable are those yields this year? We head to the fields to find out. Unlocking the code of the corn genome. It's a boost to breeding and to farmers. We'll tell you why. A masterpiece in the making. A lot of interest. and been a lot of support from producers on seeing this facility come to fruition. How this soon-to-be-finished Klosterman Feed Innovation Center could serve up answers for both feedlot operators and researchers at UNL. Move over, Iowa. There's a new record land sale on the books, blowing the previous record out of the water. The 2023 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Nebraska is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmer's first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Now for the news, USDA releasing its quarterly grain stocks report on Friday. USDA's quarterly grain stocks report shows as of September 1st, corn stocks set at 1.361 billion bushels. That's below trade estimates and also down 1% from a year ago. The agency estimates that soybean stocks are at 268 million bushels as of September 1st, a bit higher than what trade expected, but 2% lower than 2022. And the all wheat number came in at 1.78 billion bushels, slightly higher than what the trade expected. USDA NAS also revising the 2022 corn and soybean harvest figures, both slightly lower based on the updated September 1st grain stocks. I would say bullish on corn. I mean, obviously you drop uh, the stocks number oh, less than 100, but it still goes lower. I don't think that that would be a huge surprise. I'd said several times, the only way it could be a bullish surprise with uh, demand where it's been, especially export demand, is that last year's crop gets adjusted lower. And that's what we had today. Uh, no surprise to me. Um, uh, the market certainly doesn't seem surprised as far as beans go. Yeah, you'd have to think the report is being viewed as bearish. I mean, beans obviously down 20 plus cents. I do think there's other stuff going on with the markets today with government shutdown, et cetera. It comes on the heels of USDA releasing a new crop progress report showing that harvest is starting to pick up pace. It reports 15% of the U.S. corn crop as harvested. That's about two points behind average. And 12% of the soybeans are in the bin, a point ahead of the five-year average. With generally favorable conditions in the field and relatively dry conditions in many areas, it's a good incentive this year just to leave the corn and the soybeans out there to dry down naturally. That means you don't have to pay for propane down the road. So I think that's what a lot of producers are, just waiting for that moisture content to come down before harvest. Well, USDA announcing a big flash sale of corn to Mexico this week. USDA says the country purchased 1.66 million metric tons of corn, or more than 65 million bushels. It was the 11th largest daily export sale on record and the third largest sale of corn to Mexico 
ever. And it was especially encouraging considering the ongoing USMCA trade dispute between the U.S. and Mexico. Mexico coming in buying over a million metric ton of old crop uh, corn and 600, over 600,000 of new crop corn. It shows that even though the press is saying, or, you know, that we're hearing stories that Mexico isn't interested in our corn, the private um, purchasers or the users in Mexico certainly want our corn or they're worried they're not going to be able to get the supplies they need to be able to make their commitments. So they're aggressively buying corn out of the U.S. Analysts tell us Mexico may also be worried U.S. corn yields could decline. Plus, the buy may be an indication that U.S. corn prices are getting low enough to incentivize more demand. And another big buy, a new record land sale on the books, this time in Missouri. The price, $34,800 an acre. It wasn't an investor who paid such a premium price. It was actually a local farmer. According to the bill of sale from Dyer and Finner auctioneers, the record sale happened last Thursday in Saline County, Missouri. Two farmers got in a bit of a bidding war, and in just 15 minutes, 115 acres sold for $34,800 an acre. The buyer was a farmer by the name of Jeff Baxter. Jim Rothermich, known as the land talker, says the bidding started at $15,000 for the piece of ground that had been in the same family for four generations. And he says the land market has definitely seen a slowdown, but this just proves if it's high quality ground and the buyer has cash, anything is possible. What I'm surprised is me, the last time we've seen a record price was November 10th, 2022, it was $30,000 an acre in Sioux County, Iowa, 73 acres. At that time, I thought that record would last for a couple of years, or at least until we got back to $7 corn, $7, $8 corn. Well, that record didn't even last a year. And, and not only did we go past it, we blew past that. Rather Mitch telling me that high interest rates have not showed up in the land market just yet, but he thinks it eventually will. And when it does, he does think it will impact land prices. The latest cattle on feed report shows numbers are continuing to drop. USDA pegging total cattle and calves on feed at 11.1 million head on September 1st. That's 2% below last year's inventory at this time. Placements, those totaled 2 million head, that's 5% below 2022. Marketings came in at 1.88 million head, down 6%. This is the 12th consecutive month feedlot numbers have been down in the report. Every month that we have these cattle on feed reports, it's just that, I think, general reminder of how tight we are, uh, the on-feed numbers less, the placements less, the marketing's less. I mean, we are just that tight on numbers. And higher cattle prices is a trend that economists expect to continue, giving the shrinking U.S. calf supplies. All right, that's it for the news. Well, sunny skies, warm temperature, it was ideal weather for fall harvest here in Nebraska this week. But will it continue? We'll have a check of weather coming up next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Available in 16 and 18 wheel models, the HC7116 high capacity rake can handle your high tonnage forage, even corn stalks. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us this weekend. Matt, five straight days of temps in the 90s here in Nebraska. That means farmers are full throttle with harvest, but it looks like there are some hints for chances of rain in the forecast next week, something they really could have used this past summer. 
Yeah, Tyne certainly could have used a little bit more rain through the summer months. And as we transition into fall, we're going to get pockets of some rainfall here and there. But what we're seeing set up in the jet stream, which we'll look at here in a second, is what's called an omega block. So big pockets of dry weather. Now this precipitation outlook is October 3rd through October 7th. Uh, dry for a good portion of the east coast down here in the southeast. And then up around the ridge may get some showers developing into Minnesota as well as Minneapolis, Wisconsin, and into the UP of Michigan and Canada. Another push of some moisture coming in into Texas. Again, that's October 3rd through October 7th. And what I want to talk about today is what's called the Omega Block, or just a blocking pattern in general with the jet stream. Anytime you hear meteorologists talk about a blocking pattern, that basically means uh, the weather that you experienced this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, expect that to continue into most of next week. There are signs that this will start to break down deeper in the work week and especially next weekend. So we'll start you off uh, for our Sunday and into our Monday. That's an omega block. Uh, you got lines coming down to the south here. They're going to be back up here to the north and then back down to the south over here, which takes the shape of an omega. Uh, but more importantly, the impacts from this is mean uh, means that we're going to get wet weather, possibly some snow uh, over where this uh, U starts to shape this trough. That starts to shape out to the west and then under the ridge like what we just saw now there's going to be pockets of some uh, some rain but mainly dry weather right underneath where that ridge is located remember we were looking at uh, the uh, precipitation the rainfall into texas well anytime you get into kind of the saddle point between the ridge and the trough right here is where we could see some rain between monday tuesday and wednesday but that pattern will be sticking around through most of the work week and then finally breaking down Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And there's that piece of energy coming through parts of Canada within the jet stream, bringing some rain with it. Also back down here to the south as well. So again, there's the jet stream coming up on Wednesday. And what we're seeing towards the tail end of the work week and into the weekend is a shift back more towards a, a fall type pattern with the jet stream. Cool air, pocket of cool air back up here to the north, starting to sink down to the south warming up and drying out on the west coast uh, with some cooler air, possibly some frost freeze potential uh, easily kicking up uh, by the time we get into next weekend, next Saturday uh, and Sunday. So again, there's a look at the jet stream temperature outlook though between the third and the seventh, a warm two thirds of the United States. Thanks, Matt. Well, the price cost squeeze the impact it's having on farmers. We'll talk about it in our marketing roundtables from right here at the University of Nebraska coming up next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Excited for our College Roadshow to be here from the University of Nebraska. We have Corey Walters as well as Brad Lubin joining us. Brad, you know, this, we're having this discussion before the deadline, uh, September 30th, for a government shutdown. So I want to preface by saying that. But as you look at even anticipating a shutdown, what impacts could that have on some of the government entities? You know, we've watched Congress sort of flail around here and try and come up with a plan. But ultimately, we appear headed towards a shutdown at this moment. We already have to make plans. If, if you're in a government agency, we're already making plans. They're already making plans about how to deal with a shutdown. Who goes home? Who stays as an essential worker? Uh, there are already costs associated with making those plans. Even if we come up with a last-minute uh, compromise, we're heading to a little bit of a, a, a shift and a little bit of a challenge in terms of some costs and some repercussions. Well, we've known about the September 30th deadline, uh, and we've been talking about it as far as the farm bill. So it's kind of taken a backseat to the government shutdown discussion. It looks like we're not gonna have a farm bill. What is best case scenario with farm bill? What's worst case? 
we, you're right. We know that the farm bill is not coming. It's also due at the end of the month, and it it's not going to be here because it takes a backseat to the appropriations process at this point. When we get back to a debate on a farm bill, uh, we still have the same challenges we had of how do you put a farm bill together that increases some supports as certain members of Congress and many ag groups are asking, but also sticks within a budget constraint uh, that we're faced with at the moment uh, that is largely driven by a, a very large food assistance component and uh, commodity crop insurance and conservation titles as well that spend uh, substantial dollars. That budget challenge, it really sort of precludes the idea that we're going to have major reforms to a bill, which means maybe that paves the way towards a late uh, a late year compromise that could get us a new bill, but more likely gets us an extension to keep this debate going into the new year. Corey, we've talked about this, but you talk to a farmer right now, and there's not a lot of urgency that they're pushing when it comes to finishing a farm bill. And part of that may be because we have prices where we haven't had to rely on some of those programs as much. But you look right now at the trend of, of, of prices. How big of a drop have we seen in cash prices? Yeah, from uh, last spring to now, we're running uh, uh, about 20% off. Um, that's just on future side. And then uh, with the current uh, river conditions, uh, basis is also off quite a bit. So we're, we're down quite a bit, putting quite a bit of negative sentiment in right now. Um, but that doesn't mean we had a chance you know, earlier in the year to, to really look forward. Uh, and, and take advantage of those prices that were offered. It's just this year we are seeing, uh, you know, the price path did go, go down quite a bit, which is, which is unfortunate, but it's always there. Yeah, it's, it's different than what we saw last fall. Yes, very much so. And uh, uh, that's, this, is, this is revealing the, the, you know, the active management, be strategic, looking forward. Uh, don't, don't just wait until fall to make your decisions. Uh, there's a lot of money really floating around on this table, and uh, we, it, can, it can put us in a bad financial spot real quickly. But do we, as we head into 2024, do you expect this price cost squeeze to continue? Yes. Uh, at, in, the, in the long run, you know, it, it will. The, the, the profits will be close to zero, um, theoretically. But, but uh, the variation around that can offer a lot of uh, possibilities to make money. Uh, but if you get caught on the wrong side, meaning your, your production costs are way up, maybe higher than they should be, uh, and prices drop off, you know, it can, it can cause a, a, a loss in, in wealth. All right. Well, we did have some a, a big buy from Mexico this week. What is that signal? A lot more to talk about. But first, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, ag economists are still mixed on if we'll see a recession this year, and if we do, how severe it will be. But up until this point, consumers are still spending. Here's John Phipps. Earlier this summer, my faithful air conditioner in my shop stopped working. I called our usual HVAC service, and the technician came and refilled about six pounds of refrigerant. It was leaking. I was stunned by a bill for over $600, not counting the service call. A week later, it quit again, and before I poured good money after bad, I checked with another repair service to see what they charged for R410A refrigerant. It was the same. Then I asked Google and found this. The retail markup for R410A is about 10 times at least. In fairness, 410A will be phased out in a couple of years by the EPA, so inventories are shrinking. But I could buy it online right now for less than $10 a pound if I were a HVAC technician. I got an estimate then for a new unit of identical size, $8,300. 
Going back to Google, I found the same unit that you see, about the same size, designed for do-it-yourself installation, 2800 bucks delivered. I took my time, but in three days I had replaced the, my old unit. The new one is a heat pump too, so it works both to heat and cool with better efficiency than the old one. My point is not that HVAC dealers are ripping us off, but that unusually large markups invite competition to offer products for home installation and for YouTube expert entrepreneurs to show me how to do it. There has never been a more lucrative time to employ or learn even modest technical skills. My dealer was charging what the market would bear, which is justifiable in my book. Lower priced alternatives affect what some of us in the market will bear, however. I started wondering if this was evidence for what economists call greedflation, which I'd previously kind of discounted. But this chart from the Roosevelt Institute seems to support this assertion. Indeed, general inflation seems to be bare, bare good for corporate profits, and the pandemic was a great time to start raising those prices. Again, nobody is forcing us to pay for this corporate windfall, but as consumers continue to spend, manufacturers all the way down to retailers have no reason to lower prices or their profits. The American consumer is spending briskly too, even adjusting for inflation. Some of these expenditures are of course unavoidable, but we're also spending on non-essentials. Why is the big question, but it clearly, inflation is partly fueled by some freewheeling spending. Thanks, John. Well, a current freshman here at the University of Nebraska took on a major project during the pandemic, and the results, well, it's an antique tractor gold. We'll show you his special farmall next. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall, 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at farmall100.com. Well, we headed back over to campus for Tractor Tales this weekend because look who we found, a familiar face on Tractor Tales, Charlie Bortner from McCook, Nebraska. Charlie, why is this tractor so special? This tractor was my great-great-grandpa's tractor that he farmed with when he bought it brand new in 1954. And it's just, it means so much to me that this is his tractor. Well, you got it when you were 15, restored it when you were 16. Now he's a freshman here at the University of Nebraska. What's your major? I'm in ag engineering with an emphasis on machine design. So how did he bring this work of art to life? That's what we find out in Tractor Tales. This tractor is a 1954 International Super M torque amplifier. This tractor was bought brand new by my great great grandpa in 54 and I have the original sales receipt for that. Me and dad found this thing tucked in the corner of the barn and we estimated that hasn't been installed in 30 years by the time I got it. In 2020, me and dad inherited two of these MTAs. One of them was bought by my great-great-grandpa, the other one was bought by my great-grandpa. And we had the intent of someday getting them operational. When the COVID-19 lockdowns hit, it was like, well, this is a perfect time to get these things operational. So that was my lockdown project. And throughout just learning the mechanics behind this and getting them operational, I just got hooked on this antique tractor fever or rustitis, whatever you want to call it. 
and it's just so much fun. I had no idea what I was doing. First thing I did, I just I ordered an original service manual, an original parts manual, just copies of them, just to help. And I just started going just piece by piece, replace the battery, make sure that the starter was good. And by the time I was done with this one, I had replaced the starter, the whole entire wiring harness, rebuilt the carburetor, and then it was operational after about, I think it was four months on this one, uh, during that lockdown. All right, Charlie, what an amazing story, but are Farmall's your favorite? Oh yeah. By far. Yeah, yeah, Bl my blood bleeds red. <laughs> yeah, he walked up and he had a coffee cup and what did it say? Farmall on it. Well, thanks for joining us and good luck at your freshman year here at the University of Nebraska. All right, when we come back, a feedlot innovation center, what it will untap and do for feedlots across Nebraska. We'll show you next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, beef is critically important to not just the University of Nebraska, but also the entire state. Agriculture is the largest industry in Nebraska, and beef production, well, that ranks number one. And as we found out this week, there's a new focus on feedlots and one that could answer questions of, for both today and tomorrow. What was a blank canvas now shows signs of progress. This aerial view will give you a hint of something grand currently taking shape. Uh, the Klosterman Feedlot Innovation Center here at the University of Nebraska is really a commercial scaled research facility. Galen Erickson is the feedlot extension specialist for the state, as well as a faculty member at the university. The new feedlot innovation center is a commercial scale, meaning we'll have 60 head per pen, different housing systems, and we're hoping to do a lot of innovations, be a test bed to, to evaluate new technologies, and really do more and better things than we've ever been able to do in the past. The $7.4 million project should be finished in early 2024, propelling the University of Nebraska's focus on research, teaching, and extension into the future of feedlot production. The Klosterman Feedlot Innovation Center is unique because we have multiple housing systems, so we'll actually be able to evaluate four different ways, uh, facility types, if you will, for feedlot cattle. That allows us to evaluate not just traditional measures that we do, such as how much do cattle gain? What's their feed conversions? What are the impacts on carcass traits? Those are traditional measures we'll do in all experiments. Plans for the new Feedlot Innovation Center started five years ago, designed to answer various production questions within feedlots today. What's unique about this is all of the other measurements we're going to do, such as what does that do to the environment for the cattle and cattle behavior, animal welfare, stress, and so on. What does that do for animal health outcomes, such as lameness, BRD, et cetera? And then what's it do for our environmental issues? In other words, what's the effect of the cattle on the environment? So we're gonna be looking at manure issues, nutrient mass balance through those facilities. And for producers, this will cater to some of their questions as well. A lot of interest and been a lot of support from producers on seeing this facility come to fruition. A lot of excitement about the evaluation of different housing systems, including some of the roller compacted concrete that will have surfaced on some outdoor pens. Erickson says it's exciting to see the project come to fruition, especially considering it will also be an extension of the classroom. 
most importantly, we will have a student experience opportunity. So if you're an undergraduate student and, and more and more of them have interest in beef production, but with less and less beef production experience. And there's nothing better than getting a commercial scaled experience to really know, is this for me or not? As students get the chance to be on the cutting edge of technology, they'll then be able to take that into their careers. But this facility could also untap other recipes for success. The other thing is, is there's certain things that we're doing today, such as trying to solve some of our environmental challenges, looking at precision technologies to make better and more informed decisions by producers, and a host of other things that really have to be done at scale. I think the work that we do in, in nutrition and management and other disciplines with our current facility uh, is, is phenomenal, but we think this is sort of the last frontier for university system. As the project continues to build excitement, Erickson hopes it will make a lasting impact for years to come. So I think that the question we will have is what are ways we can produce cattle more efficiently, better product, maybe less stress on the animal, and hopefully less impact or even positive impacts on the environment. Well, we told you about that major buy from Mexico of U.S. corn this week, but what does it signal? We'll talk about it coming up in our roundtables next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here at the University of Nebraska. Well, there's a lot of, of things that we've talked about this week, but one of the positives was we saw a massive buy from Mexico. As we continue this trade dispute with Mexico, with the U.S. Trade Representative's office uh, even involved in this, what does this big buy signal? Uh, fundamentally, watch what's happening, not what's being said. Uh, we're still relevant on the market with this sale. I can't remember where it lies, like seventh or eighth largest sale on record. Um, we're still relevant. And we need to pay attention to that. And we're, we were right next to them. So we have, we do have a, a competitive advantage with transportation. And as we look, uh, you know, possibly for an update on the supply and demand balance sheet coming up in the October report, again, a lot of question marks when it comes to this government shutdown. So even if we do see an 11th hour deal, do you think it could still impact uh, the, the October report? When we have a, a, a crop report and we have the survey procedures that go in before it, Typically, those procedures are, are wrapped around an October 1st, uh, first of the month uh, window. So the, to the extent that we can get survey work that was done in late September before a potential shutdown, uh, if we get a shutdown, that survey work that would happen in early October might not happen at all. Our, our information might be more limited. Our ability to release a report is dependent upon having doors reopen. So we, we run into more uncertainty. Even if we have some data, we, we have markets that are skittish about the fact that that we have some uncertainty about what data is available and what it really represents. Well, we mentioned that corn buy for Mexico, that it was a positive development since corn demand has really been a wet blanket this year. But as we look at what could be the next best thing for corn demand, as we see, you know, some thoughts about we're moving away from as much demand from ethanol, is there this silver bullet out there that could be the answer? I think if you're looking at, uh, at the grain markets in, in general, you have to remember long-run economics suggest uh, uh, you know, growth and utilization of the resources we have. And, and we're always gonna have to look for new demand sources to continue to uh, uh, support the, the production capability we have. There's no good incentive to reproduce less than we're capable of. It's gonna rely on a, on a demand uh, market to, to carry it away. Speaking of demand, as we see these low river levels, I know you mentioned basis earlier, Corey, but as we look at basis just kind of fall out, 
Do you think this is short term or is this something that you think producers could be dealing with for the remainder of harvest? Oh, yeah, definitely through the remainder of harvest. Um, after that, you know, we'll, we'll find out what the weather does um, and, and filling back that river. And yeah, we'll, we'll enter a, another phase. So then knowing that we could continue to have that hurdle, what is your biggest advice for producers right now when it comes to managing some of that risk? Uh, obviously, if you got storage, use it. If you don't have storage, consider getting it uh, because our variability in, in weather outcomes has definitely been growing. And uh, we need to, to, as an individual farm, need to financially uh, be ready for that in whatever way that is. And storage is a, is a reasonable uh, uh, method to do that during harvest. Brad, sentiments have definitely shifted when it comes to farmers. So as you, what is your message for farmers right now when, you know, they really don't want to talk a lot about policy, but knowing that policy can have such an impact on their farm? Right. And certainly when we talk about uh, how to protect a shrinking margin, whether over the long run, it's going to be true. If prices are up, costs are going to come and approach it. If costs are down, prices are going to fall to that level. Mar shrinking margins, narrow margins are always a, a reality, which means managing risk is a number one principle. That might come first from crop insurance these days, but it also does depend upon what kind of farm program safety is there. That reminds us that this farm bill is relevant, not because it may not pay today, but because it continues to be there over the long run if we have uh, if we have price levels that continue to gravitate back towards long-run averages. You've got to have the tools to manage risk, and you've got to use them and uh, be prepared uh, to manage your, your margin accordingly. Brad, Corey, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Stay with us. We'll have much more from right here at the University of Nebraska next. Well, the corn genome is extremely complex, but here at the University of Nebraska, they've unlocked the code and it could change the game for plant breeders and farmers. These fields are unlocking the future. If you ask any farmer, I think they will tell you the three things they care about are yield, yield, and yield, and that is not going to change. That's going to be the, the primary focus. But to boost yields, James Schnabel, professor of agronomy at the University of Nebraska, first had to finish a job that started back in 2007. They got a draft of the easy parts of the corn genome that was published in, in 2009. But that left a lot of complex, repetitive parts of the genome that just are hard to put together. That was at Iowa State. He says mapping the corn genome is like putting together the sky in a puzzle. The pieces all look the same, and you have to figure out which ones are missing and where they all go. The most difficult part was a lot of those holes are just the same piece, uh, same DNA sequence repeated over and over and over again. And so that's why I like this analogy to putting together a puzzle. If you just have the, the same colored puzzle piece over and over and over again, all you can do is try one after another which pieces fit into the other. And that's really what we had to do to fill in some of those biggest holes. Schnabel collaborated with folks at Iowa State. It was led, though, by a team at the China Agricultural University. With the latest technology, it allowed the researchers to sequence much longer pieces of DNA. And with that, they discovered the missing pieces, mapping the entire corn genome. When uh, the first version of the corn genome was sequenced, individual DNA sequences that we could read were only maybe 1,000, 2,000 letters long. Now we're able to sequence pieces 20, 30, 40,000 base pairs long. Uh, which is why we were able to successfully fill in all, all those last missing holes. With the latest DNA sequencing technologies, along with genetic and physical maps, the team then got to work sequencing the corn genome with the goal of answering lingering questions about corn. We still do not have good uh, technologies for figuring out which corn hybrids are going to perform in which environments without actually testing them. 
we need to be doing a better job of this because the Nebraska of 2040 and the Nebraska of 2030 is very different from the Nebraska of 2023 and we need to be developing corn hybrids today that are going to thrive in farmers fields in the Nebraska of 2030. Schnabel says knowing the entire sequence of the corn genome allows researchers to make better decisions early on on which hybrids have the most potential. The difference is we can make better decisions early on about which varieties have promise, which ones should be moving through that pipeline based not on how the plants are performing in the field today, but how we think the plants will perform in the fields of 2030 when there's going to be less nitrogen, less water, and different growing seasons uh, than the ones that we ha are working with today. The team then trials that breeding here, as well as across Nebraska and Iowa. It allows them to discover which genes control performance in a wide variety of soils and environments. But as long as we can keep increasing yield, the big two big questions that come beyond that are drought tolerance and the ability to use water more efficiently and similarly the ability to use nitrogen more efficiently. The team didn't just map the corn genome, but also sorghum. Sorghum is a lot easier. It's about a third the size of the corn genome. It has a lot less of this repetitive stuff that was why it was so hard to finish the, the corn genome. And that now allows researchers to harvest even more answers. What sorghum has that corn doesn't is an ability to grow in much more marginal environments. It grows with less water, it grows with less nitrogen. It doesn't have as much yield potential, but it can tolerate a lot more stress. The other key measurement is this, a robot that takes photos and measures the angle of each leaf. As Schnabel says, leaves that are more upright on corn actually produce better yields because the plant can get more photosynthesis out of the same amount of light. Just another key into growing hardier corn. This is such a game changer because there are so many ways that corn plants differ from each other that we weren't able to measure before without a complete map of the corn genome. And the final version of mapping the entire human genome happened only a few months before Schnabel and team mapped the corn genome. We're catching up to the cutting edge in corn and I like it. By the way, the individual who originally mapped part of the corn genome in 2007 that was published in 2009, well, that was Patrick Schnabel from Iowa State University who's actually James's dad. So like father, like son. Well, a growing trend. Customer support is next. Where are the men in agriculture? Are there more women than men attending college today? Well, St. Louis Fed dug into it, and they say for every man enrolled in college, there are now two women. Here in Nebraska, enrollment in the College of Agricultural Sciences and Natural Resources is 55% female, and 45% male. But it's also a trend showing up in the ag industry. That's customer support this week. We have a thoughtful observation from Larry Erian, and I hope that's close, in Congerville, Illinois. The better question is where are the boys or men in agriculture today? Being a farmer agriculture teacher who taught in the late 60s and early 70s, I have noticed in the last decade a big trend in men backing off in, in the agriculture and leadership fields. I also taught at two major universities and found that young men didn't seem to have the drive to succeed compared to girls. Being retired now, I substitute at a local high school and find that half the class is girls and that the agriculture teacher is a woman. Nothing wrong with a woman as an agriculture teacher who is doing a great job, but the subject being taught are not down on the farm directly. Question then is do we need men on the farm with the technology available 
that work can be done with less physical activity due to hydraulics and GPS. I visited the Fair Oaks farm last weekend and was amazed to see young 15-year-old girls talking about swine breeding, gestation, rations, etc., and had no formal education in the field, and they did an amazing job like a college graduate. What I am getting to is, is farming a man's field? Do we need men in agriculture anymore? Well, Larry, it's been, been a continuing adjustment during my career as agriculture finally began to utilize the talent of the other half of our population. Certainly, industries who serve basic ag have been increasingly inclusive. New veterinarians are overwhelmingly women, for example. Technology increasingly makes the old upper body strength issue less important. My own view is women would occupy even more roles in ag, except for the now, in the now standard to earner household, they are far more likely to have high paying skills to provide steady outside income and all important health insurance coverage. Our career, Jan and I, as a husband and wife operation was already disappearing and now borders on impractical. Agriculture needs capable people today and puts less value on gender. But too many men have few other professional skills or education. This funnels them toward production ag. I think we are continuing an occupational specialization with more women farmers while operators are still predominantly men. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, it was ideal weather for harvest this week and combines have started to roll in Nebraska. So how are yield? Well, Michelle Rook says it's a story of the haves and the have not. She has her I-80 Harvest update next. The I-80 Harvest Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Case IH. The Farm Hall has been an iconic partner on the farm for generations. Come celebrate a century of Farm Hall. The one for all with us at farmall100.com and by AGI. At AGI, we spend a lot of time focused on product details, making sure you can store your grain how you need to and move it when you need to. Learn more at aggrowth.com. Well, you don't have to travel far from right here at campus and you will see harvest underway. USDA's Crop Progress report on Monday shows harvest is just getting started across the state of Nebraska with 15% of the corn and 14% of the soybeans out of the field. But as Michelle Rook shows us in her I-80 harvest update for Nebraska farmers, the 2023 growing season has really been a story of the haves and have nots. Early harvest results here in Nebraska have been variable, as you might expect. While some farmers faced their second year of drought, others were lucky enough to pick up some mid-season rains, and that was just enough to overcome some of the early season drought stress to produce some average to above average yields. Steve Wellman was hit by drought on his farm in southeast Nebraska in 2022. So surprisingly, this season started off with enough moisture to get the crop off to a good start. And then June turned really dry and we were really concerned about the drought. In fact, in June, drought covered 95% of the state. However, some mid-season moisture may have come just in time to save Wellman's corn crop. And we see the impact of great yields here now. Uh, much, much better than we thought we were going to have when we were looking at the, the dry weather in June. 
In fact, corn yields have been averaging around 200 bushels per acre, nearly 25% above his farm's average production history. He attributes some of it to improved genetics and management. Yield-wise, it looks like we're going to be above normal, yield-wise, above our 10-year APH for crop insurance, and so happy about that, at least on corn. Corn is running 57 to 58 pounds, so the late-season heat didn't hurt test weights, and they aren't seeing yield loss. And right now, the, the corn's standing well, the ears are hanging on well, so really no issues right now. However, Wellman thinks the late season heat may have hurt soybean production potential and standability. There's also been some disease and pest pressure. I think we lost the top end of the crop during August and September during the heat. Uh, it, it looked like it probably took a few soybeans, took a few steps backward yield wise, but uh, overall still optimistic that it'll be above our 10-year APH yield. However, that's not the case across Nebraska, and statewide yields may be below average, with drought impacting nearly half the state, accounting for 71% of corn and 80% of soybean acres. The unknown is how much irrigated production will make up for the drought losses. Be variable, just like it usually is in the state of Nebraska. In Nebraska on the I-80 Harvest Tour, I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, next week, we're off to Madison, Wisconsin. It's not College Roadshow. It's all about dairy. We're at World Dairy Expo next weekend for our live taping. It happens at 9 a.m. on Thursday in the Tan Bark. So if you're at World Dairy Expo, we hope to see you for our live taping of U.S. Farm Report. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.